0: One of the most precious times in the life of our church when the kids come up. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. And I pray that we might never, ever forget that. Just so these children would have looked back and have fond memories of what Rock Valley Bible Church was to them and all they learned, and that God might might preserve them and keep them faithful. Well, a a few weeks ago, we uh, finished our exposition of the book of Romans. Um, after about uh, 100 years and, and almost three years, we finished Romans. And in August, I plan on picking up the book of Proverbs. And I'm not going to preach for three years for the book of Proverbs. All right? We're going to emphasize on chapters 1 through 9. And then we're going to pick up a few things in tw- 10 and following. Um, but that's going to start in, in August. Um, surprising conversions. This will run through June and July. We have several guys here preaching Troy's going to be preaching, and Darren and Ryan and Will Weber will be preaching in the month of July. Uh, Just an opportunity to raise up people in the church so it's not about me, it's about us. And uh, they get to meditate for months on the passages they get to preach on, so they have an advantage of that. Well, in this gap, we're looking at uh, some surprising conversions in the Bible and I get the title of this short sermon series from uh, a letter, quote-unquote, written by Jonathan Edwards to a certain Reverend Dr. Coleman in Boston. Um, it, it's really not a letter, so we think about it. It's more of a, a short book. Probably takes, I don't know, maybe five hours to read it, six hours to read it, at just uh, reading out loud at that pace. Um, But Dr. Coleman had had written a letter requesting that Jonathan Edwards describe the work of God that was going on at Northampton, where Edwards was pastoring a church, because God was moving mightily there in those days. And in fact, all up and down the the eastern region of the United States, the Spirit of God was being poured out upon people and uh, not... Kind of, I guess, sort of independently, if you will. I guess, dependent all upon the Spirit, people were coming to Christ, and churches were growing, and it became known as the Great Awakening, when many were awakened to their sin, awakened to the justice of God, and in dealing with their sin, that they were under the weight of God, under the wrath of God, worthy of of condemnation. To hell forever and how the the lord stirred their hearts to to seek the kingdom of god and 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 many found christ and found peace in god through the lord jesus christ and and people in other places right particularly even across the sea uh, across the atlantic were hearing of what was taking place and and they wanted to hear of of what exactly was happening in northampton And, and the people were interested in in knowing exactly what what should take place and so um, Dr. Coleman of Boston particularly chose Edwards to want him to write about the circumstances they witnessed in his church and Edwards pledged, quote, I will do so in as just and faithful a manner as in me lies, is what he said. And um, the proper title of his work was this, A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God, in the conversion of many hundred souls in Northampton and the neighboring towns and villages of New Hampshire in a letter to the Reverend Dr. Coleman of Boston. And uh, this work is often known by its shorter title, A Narrative of Surprising Conversions. And that's why I've entitled my sermon series here these next three weeks, this week and two more weeks of Surprising Conversions. In this letter Edwards wrote, he, he described the extraordinary way in which God was, was moving in the hearts of people to cause them to turn to the Lord. He, he, he lays out how extraordinary was the outpouring of the Spirit and how extensive the influence was, that it wasn't merely only Northampton, it was beyond that, it, in, in a bunch of towns. He mentions towns I've never heard of, towns like South Hadley and Suffield. And Sunderland and Deerfield and Hatfield and Coventry and New Haven and Guildford and Mansfield and Woodbury. And even then extended to New York and the New Jerseys is what he called it at that time. Just all up and down the east coast of, of America. Edwards lays out how extraordinary were the numbers of people that came to Christ. Of his own congregation he writes this. This dispensation has also appeared very extraordinary in the numbers of those on whom we have, have reason to hope that it has had a saving effect. We have about 620 communicants, which includes almost all of our adult persons. The church was very large before, but persons never thronged into it as they did in these late extraordinary times. In other words, right, the, the place was full, but never was it just crowded and packed with people coming in. At this time, Edwards writes of the extraordinary uh, outpouring of the Spirit in the age of those who were converted. It wasn't just the young; it was the old and young alike. He writes, "This this has also appeared to be very extraordinary dispensation in that the Spirit of God has so much extended not only His awakening but regenerating influences both to elderly persons and also to those who are very young. It has been hitherto rarely heard of that any were converted past middle age." But now we have seen the same ground to think that many such have at this time been savingly changed as that others have been so in more early years. I suppose there were upwards of 50 persons converted in this town above 40 years of age, more than 20 of them above 50, about 10 of them above 60, and two of them above 70 years of age. And Edwards experience back then what we experience today. Oftentimes it's young people who who are thinking about their life, what they're going to live for, for the rest of their lives. But once people are, are stuck in their ways, as Nicodemus said, how can someone be old, enter again into his mother's womb? And uh, at that time it was unusual then, it's unusual now, for older people to come to Christ, and many people were. He writes how extraordinary it was that so many converted so quickly. He writes this, God has also seemed to have gone out of his usual way, in the quickness of his work and the swift progress his spirit has made in his operations on the hearts of many. It's wonderful that persons should be so suddenly and yet so greatly changed. Many have been taken from a loose and careless way of living and have seized with strong convictions of their guilt and misery. And in a very little time, old things have passed away and all things have become new with them. God was moving in a remarkable way. One pastor of the region said this, More had been done in one week than in seven years before and uh, as people one after another returning from their sin to Christ and trusting in the Savior and, and finding in Him rest for their souls it was interesting as I, as I read the work uh, this week kind of in, in earnest in, in detail read it and uh, his, his grandfather Samuel Stoddard who pastored there at the church spoke about in his ministry of 60 years how there were five outpourings of the Spirit during his times there of just different times where the Spirit would come and many people would come in and be converted and then there'd be a dull lapse for a while. And then many more would come and then a dull lapse. And it was as if the Spirit of God was choosing when and how it would blow. Now, my purpose this morning isn't to preach this letter about Jonathan Edwards, but to, to stir you up, to say, hey, maybe i got to pick that up. All you got to do is search for surprising conversions. Edwards, you can read it. It's tough going. Okay? It's difficult. Uh, old Edwardian reading, um, but you can read it and just, just peruse some of it. It would be to the good of your soul if so you think even about conversion, what it means to be a Christian. But my purpose this morning is to preach a surprising conversion from the Bible. As we'll do next week and, and the week after that. Last week we looked at the surprising conversion of a, a rebellious ruler. His name was Manasseh, the most wicked of all the kings in Judah. Then came to Christ, came to God, whatever, repented of his sin in an Assyrian prison, trust in the Lord and restored to power in Judah. And you can see his repentance in in coming back to power in Judah, how he sought to reform his ways of everything that he did bad. He sought to do good and bring Israel into the worship of the Lord. Well, this morning we're going to look at the surprising conversion of a wandering woman. That is, the woman at the well... Our text is found in the Gospel of John, 4th chapter. So you can open your Bibles there to John, chapter 4. If you didn't bring a Bible, you you need one from the Pew Bible, page 888 is where the the text is found. And and in my message this morning, I don't have an outline, Okay, but I'm just going to work our way through this narrative. We're just going to read and comment, read and comment, read and comment and apply. It's what we need to do in preaching. It's what uh, will be helpful for all of us. And we'll see this most unlikely of woman encountering Jesus and having her life changed. We pick up the story in verse 1. We read this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, our passage is early in the book of John. It's early in the ministry of Jesus. However, we see the ministry of Jesus growing. It, it, was, it was growing, and just at this point was surpassing the ministry of John the Baptist. John was baptizing Jesus, didn't baptize any. It's, he, his disciples were baptizing any, I think, just showing that the importance of faith in Jesus, not the actual baptism through means. But but as, his, as he, was, he was growing in influence, this was just right on the teetering thought, where, where more people were beginning to follow Jesus and baptized by his disciples than were following John. This didn't come as a surprise to either Jesus or John. John had prophesied in chapter 3 and verse 30 that he, that is Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And that's what was happening. Jesus in his ministry was increasing and John in his ministry was decreasing. And that put him in danger. Because all of a sudden he was the, the top dog. And he was the prime target for the Pharisees who turned their gaze from John to Jesus. And knowing this, Jesus retreated to Galilee, where he would be a bit safer. And so, Jesus headed north from Jerusalem to Galilee, and it took him through Samaria, which was between the two. And that's what we read in in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, Samaria was not a friendly territory of the Jews. There was great antagonism between the, the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans, after all, were not pure Jews. They had intermarried with the Assyrians who had come and and taken over their land some 800 years before Jesus arrived on the scene. And the Jews considered the the Samaritans to be half-breeds, if you will. Like half-Jewish, or or maybe like like they were mutts, is what they were. And um, they had the Jews had little respect for the Samaritans. They thought they'd compromised. And, and, And furthermore, even 400 years before Christ came, they'd built a temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And they offered up sacrifices there not in Jerusalem, and so you had this competing sacrifices. Some were in Mount Gerizim, and and some were in Jerusalem, and uh, they were proclaiming that the true worship of God was on Mount Gerizim in Samaria, not on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And then some 250 years later, John Hyrcanus, the Jewish high priest in Judea, led an invasion into Samaria and had the temple destroyed in 110 B.C., so the Jews were like tearing down their temples, protecting their temples. It was a big, big battle. There was no loss between the, love loss between the Jews and the Samaritans. Much hostility between these people. And many preachers then describe at this point how the Jews would travel from Jerusalem to Galilee. Usually going out of their way to avoid the Samaritans by going around, right? Crossing the Jordan uh, down south and then traveling up on the eastern side of the Jordan River and then crossing back into Galilee. That's the way to verse 4. Right? Jesus had to pass through Samaria, as if this meeting with a woman was a, a, a divine encounter. Like Jesus went against all social norms, had to go into Samaria. How many of you heard this before? I'm not sure it's true, okay? But I bring it up because so many people speak it, and it preaches so well, right? The foreknowledge of Jesus, he's got this woman, he's got to go there. Normally they go around, but now he's gonna, we're going to go there. It makes good preaching, but I'm not. I'm not really sure it's true. Josephus, a historian, lived in Jerusalem shortly after the days of Jesus, lived during the time of the apostles, said this, it was the custom of the Galileans when they came to the holy city of Jerusalem at the festivals to take their journeys through the country of the Samaritans. Historically, they say they probably went through. Um, so it makes sense now why Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Why did he have to pass through Samaria. Because it was right between Judea and Galilee, right? To go to Janesville, you have to go through Beloit. And to go to Oregon, Illinois, you need to go through Byron. And to go to Europe, you need to cross the Atlantic. And to go to Galilee, you need to go through Samaria. But nevertheless, this doesn't deny the drive that Jesus had to meet this woman in Sychar. Which we we see this well described in verse 5 and 6. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, Sychar was a well-known town in the heart of Samaria. You can see it right there on the map. It sat right in the middle of these two mountains, right, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, um, This is where Joshua fulfilled the command that that Moses gave to the people of Israel. When you come in and conquer the land, if you know when they conquered the land, they conquered it right in the middle, and then they went south, and then they went north to conquer everything. Um, But when they got there, Deuteronomy 31 said that you place half the people in front of Mount Gerizim, you place half the people in in front of Mount Ebal, and you read the blessings and the curses and the law before all the people. And that happened. You can read about it in Joshua chapter 8. Is a well-known town. It had, had some history as well. It was the well that Jacob had given to Joseph in his blessing in Genesis 48, verse 22. It was a, it was a well-known traveling stop where weary where travelers would rest and drink up their fill and, and fill their, their water containers. And, and Jesus was weary from his, his travels. I mean, don't think of Jesus in his divinity as this superman who never got tired. No, he took on flesh and blood, which means he got tired and he knew what it was to be wearied. And have to sleep like he did in the boat one time, even in a storm. And here we see Jesus resting beside the well, the sixth hour, that is noon, because days begin at sunup. And in verse seven, we meet the subject of our study this morning: the the wandering woman. And she is wandering not only because of her life, but she's wandering because of of her thoughts and theology had someone come to my door yesterday and just tried to talk with her about Christ. And she just went all around, all like, what are you talking about? Like, even Vaughn said, I have no idea what she was trying to say. And uh, just trying to direct her towards Christ. And she was kind of like this woman. Like, you'll see her just kind of talking about one thing and bringing a different subject up. Like, all, all, all over. Um, but that's how this woman was. She was wandering in every way. It says in verse 7 that a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now much of this seems pretty unusual. Um, the woman came to the well alone in the heat of the day. Uh, the custom was that many women would go out together socially and for protection as well and, and draw even in the morning or in the evening when it would be a lot cooler. But she came out alone. I think it maybe it signifies just her, her personage, if you will. Just uh, what kind of woman she was. Just a a loner, perhaps. No no offense, Jody. Um, Jesus was alone. I I think that's a little strange. His his disciples are left in to purchase food in the city, and there's there's safety and there's company in, in Numbers. As it stands a bit more natural to maybe have a, a disciple or two staying with Jesus. Well, but Jesus was there, and all 12 of them, like, like all 12 of them have to go to change a light bulb, right? You've heard those jokes, right? All 12 of them had to go and figure out how to how to get this food. He was alone. It's kind of strange. And finally, the words of Jesus were surprising. He was a strange woman, and without any chit-chat, it seems like he asked her for some water. And she understood how strange this request was in verse 8, where when Jesus basically said, or verse 7, he says, give me a drink. And uh, she understood how strange it was. And verse 9, she, she, she says, a Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John parenthetically uh, explains here that Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That's back what I, I alluded to earlier, right? In the days of Jesus, the tensions were so high that they didn't deal with each other. And so for Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, if you will, a teacher, to ask such a question of a Samaritan and a woman nonetheless in those days was very strange indeed. But Jesus, of course, is willing to cross all cultural boundaries for the sake of spreading the good news of the kingdom, whether it's traveling in hostile lands, whether it's talking with a Samaritan, whether it's talking with a woman, whether it's touching a leper, whether it's dining with tax collectors and sinners, whether it's inviting himself over to a house of a tax collector... When, when, when Jesus was about sharing the gospel, preaching the good news of the kingdom, he would go any place with anyone despite what the Pharisees thought. He wasn't looking to please men. He was looking to please the Lord. And we see that spiritual matters were on his mind because he transitions quickly from a drink of water to talk about spiritual things. She basically said, well, how, why are you talking to me? And then Jesus replied in verse 10, he said, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, this comment delves deeply into spiritual realities. I mean, talking about water, talking about real water, I mean, deep spiritual water that's going to give life to the fullest and this woman at the well was, was clearly confused. I, I don't blame her. Like, first of all, she didn't know who she was talking to. I mean, from her perspective, this was just a, a weary Jewish traveler asking for a drink. She wasn't aware of his glory. She wasn't aware of his divinity. She wasn't aware of his life-giving power. Nor did she know about this gift of God that Jesus was talking about, much less this, this living water. And so this woman responded on the, on the physical level. Right, Jesus was transcending going to the spiritual level pretty quick, and she's still on the physical level, trying to understand what he's talking about, trying to press the conversation forward. As she says in verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And I find in some regards, this discussion is a little bit like was found in chapter 3 when Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus. Jesus was talking about on the spiritual realm and Nicodemus talking about this physical realm. Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You're right. You must be born spiritually. And Nicodemus is like, how can you be born again if you're, oh, entering into a, a womb a second time? How, how, do you, how do you do that? And this woman, equally confused, she says, you can't get water out of this well. You don't have anything to get it right you don 't have a rope, you don't have a cup, and even Kevin Durant, with his armstring, who could never reach down there. Your arms are too short. this is well is deep you can 't get there, and if he claims to be someone great, as he is well, not greater than Jacob, of course, one of the the patriarchs who gave them the well. so kind of this conversation meanders around a little bit, and then Jesus said to her, kind of taking it from the physical to the spiritual. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. With these words, Jesus really transitions to the good news of this woman. Transitioning from life-giving water that comes from a well to to eternal life-giving water that comes from the well of God Himself. If this woman knew the Old Testament, right, she would understand some of the imagery that Jesus was pulling from. But the Samaritans mostly just looked to the Old Testament, to the Pentateuch. So they weren't aware of what Isaiah said, for instance, when he says that there will be a day when the people of Israel will draw water from the wells of salvation. Or, or Isaiah 49 verse 10 speaks about the day when God's people will neither hunger nor thirst again. Right? Revelation 7 speaks about that. Rather, God promised to Israel, Isaiah 44 verse 3, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams in the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They're just talking about spirit, water, blessing. Water it, it is water's a picture of life. It's a picture of abundant life and cleansing and refreshment and, and life. And, and whether or not she understood all this, she, she discerned enough to know that she wanted what Jesus was willing to give her. As she says in verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She wanted this water. If Jesus was promising water for, for eternal life and, and, and giving this, she wanted She wanted that, right? But Jesus has conditions. He always has conditions. And that's what he first does with with this woman. He says, we got conditions to get this water. And uh, Jesus then exposed her life with a comment that seemingly comes out of nowhere. If you read in verse 16, Jesus said, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. Right? The strategic Answer, non-answer, right? And Jesus calls her bluff. He says in verse seventeen, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have five you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And this is what makes the conversion of this woman so surprising that from what we can discern from this, her life's a mess. I mean, she wasn't probably really seeking the Lord. She'd been married five times, currently living with her boyfriend. Now, of course, we don't know all the circumstances behind each of these marriages. Um, Some may have ended in divorce. Some may have ended the death of her husbands. But but the fact that she's living in sin with a man outside of marriage gives a clue as to her life and her, her previous marriage, perhaps infidelity was there. If she was an upright woman, she would not have been living like that right now. And so you, I think you can kind of read that back into the uh, the five marriages before. Read Between the lines and realize that she was a sinful woman. Uh, one who was wandering about. One who was without direction in her life. Certainly following her own pleasures, looking maybe perhaps for life and meaning in her life. But this is precisely where we can be encouraged. This This is why... The stories of surprising conversions in the Bible help us because we can find hope there. Jesus offered eternal life to this woman. As messed up as she was, as sinful as her life had been, Jesus offers her the the living waters that spring up into eternal life. And the same is true for us. As messed up as our lives are, as deeply entrenched as sin we are, Jesus offers eternal life to us as well. A cup of cold water to drink. Now, without getting ahead of myself, of course, eternal life comes through faith in Jesus. His death on the cross for our sins is sufficient and everything. All I have is Christ, I just have his death. And that's where we can get this living water. Now, at this point, of course, a redemptive history, Jesus hadn't died yet, right? And so the living water he's offering up didn't didn't really come so much through faith in his death on the cross as it did just in trusting him. And of course you trust him in his life, then you would trust him in his death of where that comes. And we see the, the woman coming to understand who Jesus is in verse 19. She said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, that's well and good. That's That's a start, maybe that's not saving faith quite yet, but she's seeing for the first time that this weary Jewish traveler is a bit more than your typical Jewish man. He was able to tell her about his life, she discerned that he was a a prophet with, with some sort of spiritual abilities or maybe spiritual discernment. But rather than falling to her knees in, in repentance, realizing that he was the Messiah, realizing he was the Savior at this moment, she, she presses him a bit on the, on the prominent issue of the day, that is the issue of worship. If this man were to tell her about her life and her sin, maybe he was able to give insight into the fundamental battle between the Jews and Samaritans. Where's the proper place of worship, right? There's this battle. Is it Gerizim? Is it, is it Jerusalem? And so that's what she says in verse 20. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, probably pointing right to Mount Gerizim. You could see it right there in the distance. She said, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. As I said earlier, this was the battle of the day. The, the Samaritans held that Mount Gerizim was the place of worship. The Jews held the temple in Jerusalem was the place of worship. Long-standing debate. You want to just stir up a can of worms? You just stir that up. Like any sort of theological question that just kind of you're going to spin and spin and spin. Here's a theological question. She may have been dodging the issue. She may have been earnest. We don't exactly know. But she gives Jesus an opportunity to respond with this great paragraph here about what worship is. Jesus said to her, verse 21, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is here now. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And these words are amazing. And we could spend sermons on this. What it means to to worship. What is genuine worship? What is authentic worship? They really cut to the heart of what worship is. He says worship isn't about where. It's not Gerizim or Jerusalem. It's about who. Who it is that you're worshiping. It's worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. I love this picture because the Spirit. You often think about the Holy Spirit. You also think about Pentecost, right? You think about Pentecostals and truth. There's a, the Orthodox symbol, right? You think about the Orthodoxy and the and the right. But Jesus said Spirit and truth. He didn't say Spirit or truth. He said Spirit and truth. And and so many people, right, spin on either side, and some people fall on the Spirit side with much enthusiasm and zeal, but with little discernment, and others emphasize the truth side with stoic seriousness and little joy. But Jesus said, with both, engaging the Lord with proper affections of the heart, not dull and lifeless or apathetic, but eagerly and willingly and joyfully worshiping the Lord in full understanding of the truth. Understand that it's not just anything goes, not, not that, but fully embracing what accords with sound teaching in the gospel. And if you want to just see and, and, and think about some of these um, affections and desires, read Edwards on this narrative of Surprising Conversions. He talks a lot about genuine Christianity is a, is a spirit that's moved that has affections for God, joy and happiness and desire for God's people and desire to talk about spiritual things and desire to speak about His Word and desire to read His Word and to pursue God with the, the Spirit. Well, regarding the current debate of the day, Jesus didn't back down. He said the Jews had it right. Jerusalem was the place. Salvation was from the Jews, as he says in verse 22. And the Samaritans worship, he said, was in ignorance. He said, you worship what you, you don't know. We worship what we know. Salvation from the Jews. We got it right. So he said Jerusalem was the place. And Jesus promises a day when it's all going to be made clear and the day is today when we understand it's not about a place. It's about who we worship. And Jesus calls her to trust in Him with this response. Look, look at verse 21. We, we, I read it, but we kind of skipped over it. His call to her was, Woman, believe me. Believe me. Right? Trust me. Trust what I am saying is true. And then she, in verse 25, with that... And kind of sees what he's talking about. He's talking about this future time when, when things be made, right? you've got to believe me. OK, well, well, I know, right? There's going to be a time, and I'm agreeing with that, so she brings up the Messiah. She says, "I know that the Messiah is coming." Verse 25, He was called Christ, And when he comes, he will tell us all things. In other words, right? I'm trusting there's going to be a time when things are set straight between Gerizim and, and uh, Mount Zion. But I know it's going to be set straight when the Messiah comes. And he's the one that's going to end the debate. And I will believe in him. Can you just imagine what Jesus does at this point? He says, humbly, verse 26, I whom you speak to you, I who speak to you, am he. One of the great I am's of John, he's always talking about I am he. I am, I am. It's almost like at that point, I, who speak to you, am he, and he, mic drop. Now, we don't know how she responded, because there's no time for response. Verse 27, just then, as soon as he said that, just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you you talking with her? In other words, they interrupted the conversation that Jesus was having with his woman. Maybe you've had that conversation, right? You're, you're at some, whatever, party you're gathering, and you're talking with someone. You're just right getting down to that point, and boom, someone else interrupts the conversation. You're like, oh, man, I really wanted to tell this person something. We're right on the verge of something. It didn't quite work. So anyway, we see the, the woman leave. Not quite understanding what what took place. We said, verse 28, So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, okay, here we get a a little clue about what, what she's believing about Jesus. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Maybe, like, is this the Christ? It could be. I think He is. And they all went out of town, out of the town, and were coming to Him. These things, I think, encourage me to believe that she's on the road to faith. Because if she had been done with Jesus and rejected him, she certainly would have picked up her water jar and taken it home. Because she wouldn't want to come back there. But but she left in haste without that, meaning that she'd have to come back. And she did come back with the whole town. If she was done with Jesus, she wouldn't have told others about her sin. If she was done with Jesus, she wouldn't have wondered out loud whether Jesus was the Christ. She would have denied him. He's not. He's wrong. He's bad. Right? He's a Jew, but she's bringing people even to this Jewish person. If she'd been done with Jesus, she, would have not, she wouldn't have told those in Sychar where they could find him. Hey, he's out here. Come, let me lead the way. Let me show you who this man is. And I have reason to believe that she came to faith and that hers was a surprising conversion. And I think we get enough clues how the text ends. So skip down to verse 39. We're going to come back to this other paragraph. But I feel like now is the time to come to verse 39 where it says, Many Samaritans from that town, believed in him because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So you see, Samaritans, through this evangelist, if you will, just telling what she knows, all I know is this man knows about me and and you need to come. And then they believe because of his abilities, they believed in him. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. He was up to Galilee, but he, he changed his plans, if you will. He stayed for an extra time, and, and many more believed because of his word. So it wasn't merely the woman, but it was his word, and we can only imagine what it is that he was talking about. John chapter 3, perhaps, was was on his mind. He was talking about that, you must be born again, right? He's probably talking about that he's probably talking about how he's the one he's probably just just who knows what he's talking about but they came to believe and trust in him and then in verse 42 they said to the woman it's no longer because of what you have said that we believe imperfect as it was for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world Here, many are coming to faith in Jesus, not merely the wandering woman at the well, but many from the town as well. These are surviving, surprising conversions as well, is that that all the Samaritans, these, these hated people, these half bred Mongol race of people, are embracing Jesus as the Messiah. Look what it says again in verse 42. We know. That this indeed is the Savior of the world. They'd heard it for themselves. They believed her. They believed His word. And now they were coming to faith. I don't know where your heart is this morning. But just the the push of these surprising conversions is, is, do you believe that? That Jesus is the Savior of the world. My hope is that you can say, I know this morning indeed that Jesus is the Savior of the world. What you need to do to be, be saved. And I doubt not that there might be people here who aren't saved. I, I remember Steve Lawson talking about how he had deacons saved in deacons' meetings at his church he was pastoring before. Righteous people affirmed by the congregation and yet never saw their sin. So maybe that's you. Next week we'll look at the Apostle Paul, one righteous and, and religious in every respect and yet lost, not realizing he needed a Savior. Or maybe if you're not righteous, maybe maybe you're on the sinful end. I don't know what kind of background you've had. I don't think there's any among us who've been married five times. I know we have some divorce people here, and it kind of like mess up your life, but can you imagine messed up five times? It's like, wow, that's that's super hard. Seeing the pain that divorce causes in people. And here was one was five times. Maybe if you're living in a sinful relationship now or have, have sin, it's right, engrossing your life. You can call upon Christ, the Savior of the world today. The offers for you is for living water today. And maybe we surprise your conversion. Maybe you say, hey, I need to be baptized. Well, I skipped verses 31 through 38 for a reason because I wanted to continue the story of the Samaritans and their surprising conversions. But I want to begin here in verse 31 to to come kind of focus upon our evangelism, because that's what it's, it's talking about. Jesus is speaking with evangelism of the disciples. He said this, meanwhile, that is after she went out, and she had all this discussion with the, the Samaritans and brought them back. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him to say, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know not about. And Jesus, I think, is referring here to just talking about ministry. Uh, like, do you ever know what that's like when you're ministering to unsaved people, how it just stirs your heart and just stirs your strength, and you can even forget to eat because you're so enlivened by it? Frances Havergal wrote that famous hymn, uh, Take My Life and Let It Be, Ever-Consecrated Lord to Thee. You know, she wrote that after a long night witnessing to some friends about Christ. It was like so stirred in her heart that she said, I just want to live for God. And, and there is, when you're in the midst of, of, of working for the Lord, particularly when you're in the work of evangelism, and you have an opportunity to speak with others about their souls, there is this spiritual life energy that you can get, and that Jesus was alluding to here. I, I have food to eat that you know not about. Just this spiritual work that nourishes me. The disciples, of course, were confused. They said, has anyone brought him something to eat? Again, there's so much on the, on, the, on the physical realm, but there's this spiritual energy that you can get as you, you share. And so Jesus then gave a perspective about what his food is. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. I've been praying for, for months, for years. Every day at 10 or 2 in the morning, my, uh, I've got a reminder that comes off. Luke 10, verse 2. Pray to the Lord to raise up laborers in the harvest for the, um, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Praying for you all, you'd be in the harvest because exactly what he's talking about here. Look up your eyes. I, I see that the harvest are white for Harvest. Now, one of the things that struck me when Jesus says the the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few, you know, I I think Jesus was living in a time of great revival when the harvest was plentiful. Maybe the harvest isn't so plentiful today, but could it be also the labors are still few today who are faithful, wanting to to go out? But then he talks here about what it means to, to sow seed and to work. He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. That is one planting and another harvesting. You got different people doing different amounts of work, and when people come to Jesus, there is rejoicing together. And they saw that with the Samaritans, certainly. For here, verse 37, one saying holds true one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And that's just how it is with evangelism. That's just how it is with reaching out with the gospel to other people. That, that you labor, but you don't know where that labor is going to be. I mean, maybe it's hard soil laboring just to give a, a light of, a, a, of some kind of spark that, that when the kids go on, right? So Maybe young people go on, then they hear something else and are converted. Or maybe right kids who are right calm, and then you have an opportunity to share. Or maybe it's adults, or maybe it's your workplace. Other people are sowed into lots of people's lives. You know, this is we're not solo farmers here, right? It's 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 the world, it's the kingdom where we we sow and where we harvest. And just I would encourage you in in opportunities for evangelism to to be encouraged, right? These stories of conversion, right? To to be stirred to know that 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 if God could save this wandering woman, then then certainly he can save others. And so that's some of my aim here is just that we would be stirred to, to do the work of evangelism. You never know, like the story that Rachel told today. The story, I think, about Vacation Bible School coming up. Is uh, I've told this story before, it's a, it's a great story of Steve Leston, a former pastor of Kishwaukee Bible Church, that he, he came to a Vacation Bible School one time just like ours. And uh, came to believe in Jesus, and he came to his teachers and said, "Okay, so if you 're teaching next week or whatever you and someone comes to believe in Jesus and, and says, What should i do here 's basically what he told us He, he was told he said, uh, Well, honor your parents in all things, and keep your room clean that 's what he was told and so he went home, and a change was made in his life, and uh, they didn 't go to church still, but he was he was just changed, trusting in Jesus. Okay, what that means is I'm honoring my parents, I fruits that works that itself out, and I'm cleaning my room. And his parents are like, what? What's up with you? And um, he said, well, I went to that vacation Bible school, I believe in Jesus. And they went, what? And they came to church, eventually came to Christ. But that is one sowing and another reaping, right? Where Where some kind of story is told at some point, some experience, and who knows, years later, decades later, Something else where we're all reaping together. And we just need to be about sowing seed and, and spreading the scripture. Whether someone's coming to your door and talking with them. Or whether that's you going over to your neighbor and talking with them. Whether it's you involved in some activity and talking to them. But always I encourage you to look at what Jesus is doing. He's taking water, bring it into the spiritual realm. right? He, he's taking a, 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 just these, this imagery about talking about Jesus in the spiritual realm. Talk about church. Talk about your friends. Talk about what you do. Talk about what you appreciate. And and talk about spiritual things. And see the Lord lead. And just plant those seeds. And then trust, really, that like uh, with this narrative of surprising conversion, Jonathan Edwards, he clearly knew and clearly understood it was only the Spirit of God that gave hope and gave joy and stirred the heart with conviction, and that's the only place where we can rest. But we need to love people, beg people to come in, but trust that God's going to be the one that, that changes hearts. What a great application from the book of Romans, right? Let's pray. Father, I would pray, God, for your surprising conversions among us. God, we, we are done with the book of Romans. God, that is a has a, a book with a missionary focus where Paul wanted to go and preach Christ where Christ was never named. God, where he, he wanted to go and encourage people in the church of Rome with the gospel, want to be supported from them to go on to Spain. And, and I pray, God, you would give us a similar heart of the uh, apostle Paul to understand that that we're we're in sin all of us were guilty before you but but you provided salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ through his death upon the cross for our sins and that we are saved by faith and faith alone as Abraham was he believed God and was counted to him as righteousness and by faith we have peace with you And then you change us and you transform us. And the the testimony that we have genuinely believed is that we are genuinely changed and that we genuinely struggle, but yet still rest in the confident assurance there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we can rest in your love, that you'll never separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, because you have your hand upon us. And you've promised to us that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you will save your people. Even Israel. All Israel will be saved someday. And God, you call us then to live consecrated lives. Lives which are not conformed to this world, but are transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we would love and serve one another. And that we would submit to the government. That we who are strong would bear with those who are weak. God, that we would be about accepting one another in faith and grace, God, to the building up of the body of Christ, not only here in Rockford, but um, other churches in Rockford and around the world. Father, so I pray that you would encourage us by these stories of salvation. You would save us if we're unsaved. God, then you would also give us encouragement in our evangelism. God, that we go forth from this place, boldly speaking about Jesus. And even we have a chance to pass out flyers to tell others about Jesus. Um, people ask, because I have done this many times, well, what are you doing? Well, I've just got a, coming from the church over there, and uh, we're holding a vacation Bible school for kids, telling them about Jesus. Do you have any children here? And uh, just spreading the news about Jesus. Have an opportunity today even to do that. I pray that many, God, would would want to do that, and would be willing to take up a route and pass out 50 flyers or so. God, so help us, we pray. Stir us to church. God, uh, be to be desirous to, to let Jesus be known because we know that that's the best for people is to know and love Christ not only in this age but also in the age to come. So I pray you'd bless this word. Help us we think about Paul next week. God, maybe it would stir some people out of just religion that they're in and realize that it's, it's Christ and Christ alone where the hope is found. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.